there. Good morning. Welcome to Eastlake and uh, Coronavirus Weekend, everybody. We're so glad you made it out. I mean, we had Corona and Time Change Weekend, and you're still here. Like, man, Jesus is so impressed with you. I just want you to know that. Like, he thinks you're pretty amazing. I don't think that's how it works, but um, if it was, I would say that uh, that's true for you. But uh, we are glad that you're here. We are on part three of a series called Take and Eat. It's a series... Um, on the Bible. Um, it's basically a series where uh, the point of it is, here's things I think you should keep in mind when reading your Bible. And, and uh, if you've been a part of Eastlake for any length of time, you know that every time when we get together on Sunday mornings, what we're trying to do is interpret what does this book that's thousands of years old have to say uh, for today, for us? What, do we, what can we learn from that? What wisdom can we glean from this? As we kind of try and interpret it and trying to live our life um, based on the teachings and the principles of Jesus, and, and that comes through with, with some of this stuff. And um, I don't want uh, Sunday mornings to be the only place that you hear from this or that I'm like the sole interpreter for you on this. I, I want you to be able to kind of read for yourself and be able to understand that. So if I could be a, a resource and, and, and tools and helping you kind of read through this in a, in, in a unique way, um, I, w- I want to do that. And so that's what this series has been. It's a four-part series. So we're on part three. If you missed the first and, and second part, essentially uh, part one, uh, well, there's a website you can go to, eastlakechristcities.com slash talks. That has a bunch of the, the talks up there as well as this one starting on Tuesday and next week if you have to happen to miss. But um, the basic concept being that this book is ancient, it's uh, ambiguous in parts and diverse. There's a lot of different voices, lots of different, I mean, the, the span of when the first book was written to the last book is somewhere around like 2,000 years. That's a long time to be able to uh, go. There's a bunch of different authors, 66 different unique books. It's not one, the Bible's not one book, it's a collection of books with lots of different authors and lots of different time periods and lots of different perspectives on it as well. And, the, and then last week we said, there's implicit bias in, in some of this stuff. Like there's, there's people who are writing with an angle in mind. Specifically in the Old Testament, we said the only reason we have the Old Testament the way that we do is because there was a group of people trying to make sense of why they had been in exile. They'd been, been, they feel like they'd been chosen, that the Abraham promise of, you know, I'm going to make you into this mighty nation. And then they go into the promised land. They leave Egypt. They go into the promised land. They have all these things going for them. And then the northern kingdom goes to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom to the Babylonians, and they eventually find themselves in exile going, How do, what do we do to get here? I thought, like, God liked us. Um, I thought he had a promise for us, and now we're here. Uh, and then we said that there's even a period that I think where they got out of exile, they got allowed to go back into Jerusalem, and they're allowed to kind of begin rebuilding their life, and they're trying to make sense of where we came from and how does that inform what we're trying to recreate here. Are we still a part of God's promise? Is he still out there? Does he even care anymore? That is like the overarching question that you've got to understand in reading the Old Testament. Are they dealing with questions of not just a historical standpoint, but for them, what are we doing here, basically? That's, that's a big piece of that Old Testament thing. So, and, then, and then I said last week, uh, we're going to go and, and transition to New Testament a little bit today. Is this just an Old Testament thing? Is that just how you read the Old Testament, or is that how you can read the entire Bible? So we're moving in that progress um, today. Uh, and I think throughout, in, in all 66 books, what we see is not one consistent portrait of God uh, that we are expected to kind of piece together and like form and make sense. What we're seeing is each and every single era basically imagining this version, using their language to be able to describe a God. And it's not that God has changed, it's that our understanding of him has changed. 
This is essentially a history book or a look back on here's how people have experienced and understood what God meant to them and how it transitioned. And, and, and it goes back to, well, is God just, you know, this ever-changing, ever-evolving being? I don't believe that. I think a lot of the early church creeds are Jesus is immutable, which is unchangeable, which is God's been the same. It's just that we understand him differently in the same way that if you live, and let me put it in practical terms for you, if you live in a home within about a mile radius of this, you know, old abandoned theater, there is a really good chance you have asbestos in your home somewhere. And I'm not speaking ill of your home. I don't even know. I just know that that's just how construction worked in North Richland because it was a fire retardant and all this kind of stuff. And yet now, like, you know, is there some in this theater unofficially? We don't know. We don't want to ask that question. I don't know. Don't ask, don't tell. That's how we've kind of operated with that in this place. Now, here's the thing. We know now that it's not that great, and not by not being not that great, I mean it causes cancer. Now, did it start causing cancer in 1997 when we figured it out, or had it been doing it all along, our understanding of it changed? Our understanding of it changed. It didn't change. It always did. We just became more aware of it, right? All right, I, I know that the analogy breaks down at some point, but in, this, in, in kind of a similar vein, our understanding of God, this is how we got some of these old understandings in this. And this has been a constant thing about how do we describe or how do you put words to that thing that we kind of think is out there and exists. And when it comes at it through scripture, you see uh, all kinds of stuff. You see the psalmist. Um, you know, David or whoever wrote some of those psalms in there talking about God as a shepherd, God as a rock on which I can build my life uh, upon. Um, God is, all, is this and, and fill in the blank. And we kind of do this. If I was to say, this is a great starting point for people who are like, I'm not really religious. Okay, well, you, do you believe that anything exists out there? What, what is God to you? God is this being. God is love. God is, um, I don't know, anything that behind the scenes, if you think that this thing got here for a reason, that we're doing this not by accident, but on a purpose, it is the divine whatever. In the 18th century, philosophers would say, God is the divine watchmaker. And what they meant by that is if you were out walking along the road one day and you saw like one of those pocket watches on the ground, you wouldn't think that just like, you know, like things came together and formed it there. Either somebody placed it there or somebody created that. Like that the thing just doesn't happen. That is there by design. And so this thing that's out there has been designed by something. Therefore, God is the divine watchmaker. And, and that was how they kind of processed their version of what God is. Now, none of you own a pocket watch. And if you do, you're very interesting, but that's fine. Most people don't Get those, have those anymore, and so our language changes, our vernacular changes. We answer that question differently. Like if I was to say, all right, we don't own pocket watches anymore, so God is like Amazon Alexa. He's always listening to everything that you say, right? Now, I don't think that that's actually true about God, but that's been our way of kind of reimagining or reinterpreting how this sort of thing works. Now, this takes place on all kinds of different levels, and it's funny to laugh at Amazon Alexa piece. But when you have somebody or when I hear somebody say, well, I, I think my God is a God who cares about climate stewardship or social justice or immigration or borders or, or abortion or pro-choice or pro-life or whatever, I'm like, that's, I, I get it. I understand what you're saying. But as hard as it might be to hear, the God of the Bible, if we are strictly speaking about it in here, doesn't actually champion any of those causes. Do I think that he cares about climate? Yes, but there's no thou shalt not use plastics in the Bible. It just is not there, no matter how hard you look for it. All those causes I just mentioned, however important they might be to us, are kind of a modern thing that we have to kind of reimagine 
all right, based on what we know about him here, what would, do we think is the appropriate way to live out here? And the thing about that is it can be taken in a lot of different ways, depending typically on kind of your political leanings or whatever. There are verses for pro-life. There are verses for pro-choice. There are all kinds of different perspectives. And I understand you'd be like, well, yeah, but more heavily on this. That might be your perspective. But we're all just trying to reimagine what it means in this place. This is a reimagined sort of God. And, and I'm, I'm going to use this word imagination or um, social imagination in, in a variety of different ways. I want to clarify up front. When I say imagination, I don't mean a figment of your imagination, as in this doesn't actually exist. You're just kind of making it exist, which is a common critique of kind of religion as a crutch, as you know, nothing exists, but you just imagine that it does. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm using the term social image, uh, imaginary as how I envision things to be. And you might never say this word, um, but you understand what this kind of means. We all have a social imaginary of how things work, especially in the area of things that we don't understand. For instance, I used to be in a morning small group with a guy named Bill um, who uh, attends here, and uh, he works for Energy Northwest. His entire job uh, is to plan for the biannual outage uh, that they do with the nuclear reactor out there. Uh, preparing, so he, he works all for two years. He works on preparing for all of the process and, 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 and steps in, in place to be able to kind of refuel the, the nuclear energy machine thing. I see even me now saying thing. They would not say thing, right? There would be more technical language involved in that. But every once in a while, he'd be like, I, I'm not going to make group for the next four weeks. I have an outage, and then, and then after that, I'm back in, and, and he prepares. As soon as he's back in, he prepares for the next one two years later. And it was, it's, it's amazing because he begins to talk to me about how this nuclear reactor sort of works to produce energy, and I'm like, oh, I get it. And he's like, you don't, but that's okay, right? Like, I don't get it. And then, like, HBO came out with that Chernobyl documentary. And, they, and I watched that, and I loved that. I loved it so much, like I read a book on it, Midnight in Chernobyl, which was fantastic. And, and, and in my mind, I keep thinking, I know now how these things work, but I don't know how they work. I should not run the machine. I shouldn't touch anything, right? And my, my imaginary is more advanced than it was prior to meeting Bill and prior to watching the documentary or prior to reading the books, but it's still nowhere near actually how that works. I would be lost and would be fearful to touch anything if I was anywhere close to a nuclear reactor, right? But in my imaginary work, this is how I think it works. I'm the same. I'm not really a car guy. I know I put gas in and I put oil in and I push the right pedal and it goes forward and left and stops me, right? That's my imaginary. How does a car work? I don't exactly know. I know that like gasoline burns up somehow, and there's a combustion engine in there that makes this thing work, but some people who are smarter than me would be like, well, yeah, but there's like exhaust and this. And I, I, I don't know. Here's what I know. Here's how I know this thing works. Or in my mind, I put it in, and it goes. That's how it works for me. That's enough for me. Now, if, if it's still a little bit unclear, let me bring it in even one more level. This week, the, the social imaginary of our current populace is being affected by this thing. We have this idea of how coronavirus works. Now, apparently, everyone in the Tri-Cities thinks it affects our city's water supply and your intestinal fortitude, which is why when I go to Costco, there's hardly any bottled water and there's no toilet paper until Monday. That's not how it works, you guys. No matter how much the news goes, it's not going to affect your water supply and it's not going to affect your bowels. We're like, yeah, but it might. And I'm, it's like this unknown and so I'm preparing for the uncertainty by thinking it's a virus, things go bad, let's just stockpile and we'll be good for however long. In our social imaginary, until we get new information that comes in that says, well, this is actually what happens, 
uh, then we, we kind of operate in a certain way. That's how social imaginaries work. All right. Uh, and I, what I want to say is that that is exactly taking place in this. When you read your Bible, there are social imaginaries at play about how people perceive God to be at work in their existence. And they would use the culture and the vernacular of their day to kind of influence this. And I know that that's dangerous. I know a lot of people um, who are, are especially like, well, you know, um, uh, tied up in the inerrancy and, and scripture. And, and we can't, you know, be careful with this. Don't touch this. Just leave it. And I... I I love this thing. I love the Bible. I definitely am, uh, I'm, I'm probably more interested than, than most of you, if not all of you. Like, uh, this thing is in, super interesting to me. In the same way, and it might not be to you, and I, I get it, because you're interested in things that I'm not interested too. Like, I go to your, you know, your house or meet you, and you're like, I, I'm really into bugs. And you're like, I'm like, what? How is this possible? Like, it, but the way that you, you collect them and you do this, and you're like, and then I kind of get interested because of it. I, I understand this is kind of unique, but I, 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 uh, I look at this thing, and I, I realize in this way, um, we shouldn't depend, or when people say, be careful about that, we shouldn't de- demand or you know, depend on the uh, secular culture to influence how we perceive God, and yet that's unavoidable. What we look at in history is a bunch of people who have allowed outside influences to talk about how they view who God is and what he looks like and what it means to be able to follow him. We can't escape that. It's unescapable. This is why we get this idea of a jealous God in Exodus uh, chapter 20 with the uh, first two commandments that show up. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images of me. Why? Because they're coming out of a culture with multiple different gods. It was like a, they, the culture at that time believed in a marketplace of gods. You get to pick whichever one you want. And they thought, well, ours is going to be the best of all of them. And so they used this very, like, he's going, to be, he's going to be jealous because he doesn't want you to pick all of the other ones. He wants you to be solely dedicated to him. That's them saying, in their language, this is what's kind of most important. And then uh, even beyond that, this idea of a warring God. With the marketplace of gods, every kind of different nation would have their own. And when two nations would battle, whoever won, their God obviously was greater than the other God. And so their God won. So they would use this language of God is calling us to go fight. God is with us behind this battle. We lost. God's not with us. We did something wrong. This is in their way, their social imaginary at work about how God operates. Do I really think that God is jealous in that way? Do I think that he said, I want you to go and slaughter all of the men, leave the women and the children? You know what? Now kill the women and the children too, take their stuff. Do I really think that God said that? I don't think so. I think that that's what... They thought God was, that's their imaginary at work, because that's the world that they came from, and I can't fault them for that. That was just a unique thing for them. So that's important as you read this kind of stuff. And the perennial question that comes as a result of that is then this, what remains and what gets transformed? If what we read in here is largely a product of the cultural environment that it was brought up in, that it's not independent of culture, that, it's, that you read that in it, then what remains, what is what can we not touch, and what gets transformed moving forward? Or another way of looking at it, or asking the question is this, at what point do we cross the line from adapting to tradition so it can survive to compromising the tradition beyond recognition or uh, overreaching? At what point do we say, uh, this, needs to, this needs to change, this needs to evolve to kind of survive in this way, and then at what point are we doing too much uh, to make this work? And it's an interesting thing. It shows up in the Old Testament and the New uh, I mentioned last week this reimagining of 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 God in, in light of the exile of of them going, 
uh, we thought that God was um, like had chosen us. We thought we were in a, a privileged position, and here we find ourselves in this uh, like terrible situation. And we're trying to make our way back home, and we're 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 uh, we're trying to figure out who we are, where we go from from here, and and what does God have any future uh, with us? But I had mentioned last week that it's not it doesn't just end there. It it, it is probably most obvious in the Old Testament. Um, but it also shows up in the New Testament as well. New Testament authors were just as creative in kind of looking at it and going, what remains and what needs to be transformed? What can we borrow? What can we leverage and to get something across that we need to get across in this unique way? So to show you an example of it, we just finished up uh, a series on uh, hope. It was a series called Greener Pastures, a series on divorce and breakups and all that kind of stuff. When your world caves in, what is the thing, what is the ground that you hold on to? Um, And uh, I I mentioned in that series, uh, it was four weeks on it, and at the very end of it, I said, the reason that we can have hope is because Christianity has been a proponent of a belief that life is, that there's life beyond this life, Um, that uh, what you do in the here and now matters. Um, you choosing to forgive and not hold on to bitterness or anger or all that kind of cynicism or whatever is important because you're creating your, yourself, your soul. It's a part of your soul. And I think that what you do in the limited time uh, that you have on earth, that we have on earth, affects how we live in eternity beyond this life, right? And uh, for Paul, it would show up in his writings to the early church, and he would use the term the resurre- re- resurrection of the dead, as like this general idea that life, that Jesus's death and resurrection uh, is not just particular, but is a f- sign of the first fruits of things to come. And that term resurrection of the dead sounds very, very cultish. I understand that. So when I say that, you're like, that sounds like Kool-Aid's following it up next, all right? Um, but when I say it in terms of you and I, I mean, a lot of times people who are semi, even semi-religious have this idea of life beyond this life. That when you die, we don't know what it is. I mean, people write books on it, but we're like, nah, you don't really know either. But um, we do think that there is something, uh, maybe not everybody, and that's fine if you don't, but I'm just saying that's, a, that's been kind of core religious kind of thing, or at least we think it is. In fact, we so often think that this is so fundamental to the religious package as a whole that everybody's believed this, that the entire Bible is full of this, and yet... If you read the first three quarters of your Bible, the first part, you know, that whole first Old Testament piece, this idea of an afterlife, this idea of something beyond this life, this idea of what Paul would say, resurrection of the dead, really doesn't have any sort of bearing. I mentioned that the last, of that last part of that series, and I knew it kind of inspired this series as a, as a whole. Because what, we're, what Paul did is essentially a reimagination of this. Old Testament people, in their minds, when you died, there was just nothing. They didn't waste any mental energy talking about what might be. David in the Psalms would say, my soul goes down to Sheol, which is like this world of nothingness. This, uh, my, my soul goes back into the dust in which it was formed. I mean, you, you have a couple of instances of, of people being risen from the dead. Uh, Ezekiel raising the Valley of Dry Bones. You've got Elijah raising a widow's son from the dead. But for the most part, that was treated as like unique to that situation and not true for everybody as a whole. It would not, it would not show up as a general looking forward ahead looking point for Christianity as a whole or humanity as a whole for a long time. Resurrection was an adjustment to the story, a shift, 
a reimagining of what God will do. And it arose during a Greek period, solving a pressing problem that had to do with God's justice and his fairness to his people. Because a key promise to the Jews, and really to us if you think about it, is the idea that faithfulness is rewarded. Now, you might not say it in those terms, but you kind of, and we kind of think in these terms. If I'm a decent person, God, I'm not going to say that you owe me like a decent life, but like you kind of owe me a decent life. Or when bad things happen and my faithfulness is not rewarded and it feels like I'm being punished and I've been a good person and I shit, and because we, we know this more in the negative of bad things happen to me, I feel like I'm a decent person. What's wrong with you? Do you not exist? Do you not love? Do you not care? Are you not strong enough to do anything about this? We know it more in the negative than in the positive, but it holds true if A is equals B or whatever, then this, this plays out. We feel like faithfulness is generally rewarded. And so did Israel. And they felt like they were in this unique relationship with God. In fact, they believed it so much, they basically had a three-part belief system for what faithfulness meant post-exile or while they were in exile as they're trying to make sense of the promise of God. And it shows up in these points. Number one, they felt like eventually if we are faithful enough, God will give us a chance to return to our land. And what we know is the Babylonians came in, they destroyed the temple, they hauled all the best and the brightest back to Babylon, and they lived in exile. That's where some of this stuff was written down, specifically kings and, and all that stuff. We do know that the Persians eventually took over from the Babylonians, and the Persian king decided to be a lot more friendly to the people who were in exile and, and everywhere else. They're like, we don't want to babysit you. You get to go home. Now, you still work for us. We are still your bosses. We're still your landlords. But... You don't have to like live here. So they got to go back to Israel. So check one, step one of this whole restoration or consolation of Israel is done. We get to return to our land. Number two, they get to rebuild the temple. Guess what happens? What's one of the first things that they do? Nehemiah records, Nehemiah comes back from Babylon. He sees that the, the whole city's a mess. He begins to build a wall. He recruits his people to help build this wall. Why do they want a wall? Because we're going to build a temple, but we want it to have some sort of protection. We don't want anybody else to be, just be able to come in. We need protection, security system, and then we can begin to rebuild the temple. And they do. They build what's called the second temple. Solomon's temple has been torn down. Now they enter into what's known as the second temple period, post-exile. This would be the temple that's in place when Jesus comes and begins to like clear out the vendors and does all the stuff with him in, in the temple. This is the temple that's in play in that point. And the third thing was that this, a king from the Davidic ancestry, from that line of David, would sit on the throne. And this is the one that really didn't fall into place. One and two, we got in our land, we built the temple, but nobody is a king of Israel. There'd be some puppet kings, but they really don't have any authority. Because ultimately, the Persian king ruled the Rus. Ultimately, you couldn't do anything that the, the Greek, eventually the Greek uh, king wouldn't let you do. And then, and then the Romans as well in, in Jesus' time. So in, in all of that period, for centuries and even decades, or decades even centuries, sorry, um, they don't have the authority that they thought they needed. The third part of this whole thing is, again, loose. It's not tied up. It's, we're waiting for this. We keep waiting for this. And again, they kept saying, well, but we feel like faithfulness should be rewarded, but it's not. Faithful and obedient Jews died without seeing the restored kingdom. That is the setting for a couple of verses that we're going to read about. A guy named Simeon shows up in Luke chapter 2. Luke's one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Luke is one of the only two to have birth narratives of Jesus. So birth narratives show up in Matthew and Luke. Matthew writes about the wise men. Luke shows, talks about the shepherds. Shepherds show up in chapter two, but in, after the shepherds' announcement and all that kind of stuff, this takes place 
uh, verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, who was righteous and devout. Pause for one second. Um, Simeon was a common name. It was one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, and so it was a very, very, very common, well-known name. It'd be like uh, Joe. Like everybody knows like four Joes. If somebody goes, if your wife or spouse comes up to you and go, hey, Joe called, you might say, which Joe? Because, you know, there's several on my phone. That's how common this name was. And I think that that's important. It will show up in play. Who was righteous and devout. There's, there's, Luke is providing commentary on this person as being legit. Okay. Um, he is somebody who is like, they're going to go into this thing about what took place, but he's setting the stage for why there's credibility with his experience and what happens in, in, in this way. This is, um, this is his way of saying like a good old Joe, like nobody has any problems with Joe. You, there's somebody in your life that you know, and they're just like, there's nothing special about them, right? This is, this is a big deal. Um, common name, but like doing good things. Uh, my wife and I, we went to Costco, as I mentioned earlier, because we were trying to find toilet paper and couldn't find any. There's a guy who checks the door as they're coming in or as you checks your receipts as you're leaving. His name's Donnie, and the only reason I know that is because he's got a name tag. I know nothing about him. But he's so kind to our family, and he might be kind to every family. We like to think it's because of our family, and we have good kids, so who knows? But my wife made a comment, even this last week as we left, she's like, he's always just so kind and caring and like... He's like, you know, you don't even have to pull out your card. We're good. And, and who, kn- who knows? The guy might sell drugs on the side. I have no idea. He seems like a very kind and, and generous guy. And, and Donnie, anyways, I'm not like, if you work for Costco, I'm not trying to like, you know, employee of the month, nominate or anything like that. All I'm saying is good old Joe, just that kind of a character. All right, moves on. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is the code for the third part to take place. The two parts are in, but there's still one big one. There's no independence. We don't get to call our own shots. We're still waiting. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Luke's trying to say he's not out there. He's not a wacko. Like, this is based, this is, uh, this is part in, uh, of the whole God's big vision of things. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Before he had seen Yahweh's, the Lord is kind of a deceiving thing because we oftentimes uh, classify that with Jesus. In this scenario, it was Yahweh's Messiah. Messiah in the Hebrew meant anointed one, which for them was code for the Davidic ancestor king who was going to be in leadership at some point. Um, that was the Hebrew term for it. The uh, Greek word for Messiah is Christos, which basically means Christ. You always thought maybe that Jesus' last name was Christ, right? It's not the case. It's Jesus the Christ. That's how this is kind of working out in this way. So he, he's saying, I was waiting for the Christ to be able to come. And he, he had this idea or this thought. Or, or maybe like this actual genuine uh, encounter with God that says you're not going to die before you see this kind of sort, sort of thing take place, before step three of the consolation is fulfilled. All right, moving on. Next verse, 27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And I, I, I think this part's interesting for me because I think I'd always thought that he was a priest, that he was there to kind of facilitate this because you're going to see that he's going to be involved in that. But in, in my research stuff this week, I realized he wasn't. He would go on to be venerated as a saint in the Catholic Church and have his own feast day, February 2nd. We just celebrated it um, as kind of the, the God receiver. That would, that's how they would kind of uh, classify him. But he's just a good old dude who is hanging out in the city and feels compelled to go and 
special things are taking place here, right? This is, this is significant. He's a nobody, essentially. I just want to clarify that. We're going to do a series in a couple of weeks called uh, A Religion of Nobodies. And this is, uh, this is part of it. Like, God didn't bring in, oh, and the high priest had a dream that night. Um, or somebody with a t- who owned a big business who had a ton of money and a lot of influence. He's pulling from regular nobodies who happen to be righteous and devout, and that's who he's using to kind of leverage this whole thing. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law uh, required, um, snip, snip, I, don't, I think he figured that out. Anyways, Simon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord. And by the way, Simon took him in his arms. Like, he wasn't the one to perform this. Probably he wasn't the priest. It feels like he's just an old guy, and as they're kind of waiting in the waiting room or, you know, sitting around or doing things, just this old, nice guy, Joe, religious and devout, everybody knows who he is, who comes up and says, can I just, can I hold the kid for a second? Can I see your baby? And I know, like, early young parents are typically like, get away from me, creepo, Right? But it feels like in this scenario, there was a relation. There is something where they're like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, hold him. And he holds him, and then he begins to do this prayer. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And that word servant, he uses the word doulos or doulos, which basically means almost like your slave in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. This would be controversial, by the way, because Judaism was like an, in, uh, a very exclusive thing. You had to become Jewish. This is part of why he's in here in the temple in the first place. And yet here's Simeon or Luke writing about Simeon in, in, in a way that's saying this now is going to be expanded to beyond just the Israelite race, which is, which is unique. That's a reimagination of what they, what they had currently experienced so far. And the glory of your people, Israel. Reimagining in this way what it meant to say the king has come. Because for them, a Messiah was an adult figure who God would raise up to be able to lead the people in a successful rebellion of either the Greeks or the Romans or whoever was in charge and reestablish Israel as its own independent state, not subject to anybody. That was what the consolation of Israel looked like. And now he holds this child in his hands who there's no, I mean, Matthew would make a case that he comes from the line of David, but he's probably just stretching that to kind of make it fit the narrative in here, who's really a nobody. And he holds this child in his hands and he says, I see it. The king has now come. We used to think it looked like this, somebody riding in on a white horse to lead the people in a successful rebellion. Now I'm seeing it come through the humble nature of a child. He's changing the story up. He's reimagining. New information has come to light. I now think of things differently. I think this was God's plan the entire time. It's just now that there's an evolution of thought and an evolution of change in the mindset of the Israelites or specific ones. In fact, the next few verses go on to talk about a woman named Anna who perceived the exact same thing. It's almost as Luke is saying, there were certain people who begin to see the dots and connect the dots of what God was doing in this nation. That God was doing something different and a new reimagination had take place. And they were beginning to put the pieces together. That God was once again at work. That he has not forgotten about us. That he does have a plan. And that restoration of Israel is coming. Because faithfulness is rewarded. Faithfulness is rewarded. Now, this 
is incredibly important because of the time frame in which this is taking place. The end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, in between of those two periods, is about 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period. None of the books that show up in the original canon of Scripture fit in that time period. There are some books written, um, typically Jewish history books. Um, they fill, uh, they, they are contained in what's known as the Apocrypha, or if you grew up in a Catholic church, it'd be, here's the Bible, and like this uh, appendix, basically, uh, which is the, the, the non-canonical, or they didn't, make, they didn't qualify to make the canon of Scripture, but they are important, and they would talk about the history of the Hebrew people, uh, and, and specifically a lot of different uprisings in there of their attempts at making the constellation of Israel take place. So the one of them is Judas the Maccabean, who comes, he leads this revolt that seemingly is successful, and they, they are surrounded, and they only have so much oil to be able to kind of keep their lamps lit, and yet the oil kind of uh, somehow expands, and they're able to keep their lights on, and they're able to fight off the enemy, and that's what they celebrate with Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah the, the special thing. Anyways, um, in one of these books, there's a story um, that comes as a result of the Greek king Antiochus the fourth, who... Was so, uh, was so aggressive at fighting against the Jews, he erected a, t- a statue of Zeus in the temple as a way of just basically giving the middle finger to the Jews, being like, this is your sacred spot. Here's a picture of the Greek god Zeus, and as well, a statue of himself, which is like, that's really bold, right, in this area. saying, And then he would begin to go and kill people, and then there's this story that shows up in the apocryphal books about the persecution that the Jews were currently um, uh, experiencing under the Greek king. And one of the legends of the stories goes like this. Seven brothers and their mother are, are, are brought before the king, and, and the king um, it says, here, you need to renounce your faith. You need to eat this pig, this bacon, and uh, we promise bacon's really good. It's like, can you smell it? You know, the smell of bacon. You're like, how could they resist this thing? But for them, the kosher, the whole thing, it was like, this is a religious thing. Like, we don't do this. And the king basically said, you do this or you die. And you don't die or we're just not going to, like, kill you. We're going to, like, maim you. We're going to torture you. We're going to scalp you. Uh, we're going to uh, cut out your tongues. We're going to have your hands and feet cut off. And we're going to do it one by one. So the oldest brother goes first, says, I'm not going to renounce my faith. They kill him. They go to the next brother. You saw what happened to your brother. Do you want that to happen to you? He renounces his faith. They go down the line. This is the, how the story kind of goes. And one of the responses of the brothers shows up in this way. Second Maccabees, again, apocryphal book, not scripture, I understand, but a, a Jewish history and important nonetheless. Chapter 7, verse 9 says this, you accursed wretch, referring to this person who's operating this persecution, either the king or one of his henchmen or whatever, you dismiss us from this present life. You kill us. But the king of the universe referring to Yahweh, will raise up, raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. How do we make sense of a God who is faithful and just in light of all of the persecution currently taking place? What we are beginning to see is a reimagination of what it means to die in this life not having seen what God promised to have seen. They're beginning to talk about a resurrection of life. This did not show up in the Old Testament. This way of thought began to show up in that intertestamental period because they're trying to make sense. How do we hold on to a God who is faithful and just when we keep dying for what we believe? Well, perhaps our death isn't the end, which is why Paul when he begins to write to the Romans and the Corinthians, begin to talk about a resurrection of the dead. You know we believe these things. He didn't create this. 
This was already a current thought of the day. They had been reimagining this scenario. Paul is reaffirming this as he says, Jesus' death is the first fruit. His re- and, excuse me, his resurrection is the first fruit of what we can experience, which is why you need to live with purpose today in spite of the fact that you, things might not be as you thought they would be, especially because you've been faithful and it feels like God hasn't, which is important. This is incredible. This is good for us because this isn't just historical. This is for you. You believe that God is good and generous and all this kind of stuff, and, and you feel like I've been faithful, I've, I've done good things, and yet things can keep not working out for me in this way. And the response that you had when you, if you sat through that series on hope that we just did is keep plugging away, keep, keep doing the right thing. Faithfulness will eventually be rewarded, if not in this life, then in the next one. And I know that can feel like a cop out for some people. This is, this is what's taking place. This is their way of understanding, a reimagining of God so that we can hang on to God is just and he's faithful and, and we, can, we can still have hope that what we are doing matters in this way. We imagine it playing out one way, but new information has come to light. If we believe that, and I think that you do, even if you wouldn't even put it in these words, you are experiencing and living out and hold on to a belief that has been reimagined. And it's okay to do that. Like, I think that's our responsibility. We get to see how many times it has been done in there. And we have the Bible, which is like, here's what we absolutely definitely know. And then we get this invitation to be a part of the process. And in regards to this, what remains and what, you know, what has to remain and what gets to be transformed and where's the line, because that's a very important question, and I understand it. What we're going to see when we come back next week is that Paul is not done. He's not finished yet. He's got one more big reimagining left to do. And it has to do with Jesus and how he will leverage anything to be able to communicate the truth of what Jesus is. So what remains? Anything that points to him. What gets to be reimagined? Pretty much everything else. And we get to be a part of the process. The church, we are part of the capital C church that for hundreds and hundreds of years since this closure of this canon has said, well, what does it mean to live out now based on the circumstances? What, inf- what new information do we have now that helps us to reimagine a God who is interested in climate stewardship, is interested in, in all of these things that we care about. That's part of the process <clears throat> for this. What remains and what's transformed? Next week, he's got one more big reimagining left to do, and we get to be a part of it. I hope you come back and follow it. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so incredibly thankful to be a part of an interpretive community like a church and one where we, we do, we look back, we have reverence for what has taken place, but we also recognize this is not just to get together and talk about history, but also interpret it for the present. What does it mean to, to live this out now? Um, we do this corporately, but also individually as, uh, as people who are probably, a, a, many of us struggling with purpose, existence, and struggling with uh, pain and suffering, especially when we feel like um, it's unjust, and we hear about God being a God of love, and it just, there's seasons in our life where it just doesn't feel like that. Um, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to understand um, that that reimagining process, that that idea of um, that, that we, we hold on to this, this faith and this hope, that that, and that was a product of this sort of reimagining. 
And then we get to see the upside of being a part of a community that gets to continue that in the future. And it has a responsibility to do that, too. We don't escape it. We don't just tell us what we need to know, but we get to kind of play a part in it. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like uh, for us corporately and personally and the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen.